The localized condition of planetary atmospheric condensation caused a malfunction in the visual orientation circuits, or, to put it another way, the Doctor Who podcast. I'm Thomas Pillsbury, I'm the current editor of Doctor Who magazine, and this is episode 78 of the Doctor Who podcast. Welcome to episode 78 of the Doctor Who podcast. Now, as you heard in the intro, um, there's another Tom in this space. Um, but this would be the quite amazing Mr. Tom Spilsbury. So following up after our interview with Clayton Hickman earlier on in the year, uh, we're going to be talking to, today to the current editor of Doctor Who magazine. Um, now, James was lucky enough to conduct this interview. Hello, James. Hello, Tom. Hello, everybody. Fab. So there are plenty of revelations to come, but I think bearing in mind some of the controversy that surrounded Doctor Who magazine recently, let's avoid any spoilers and get straight into the interview. have the very great pleasure of being joined by the current editor of Doctor Who magazine, Mr. Tom Spilsbury. Welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for spending just a small piece of time talking to us. Oh, pleasure. Your position or your, your job is one that many, many Doctor Who fans look at and think, oh, what a fantastic job. That's something that I would absolutely love to do. So is it as fun and easy and straightforward as it would appear? Well, I don't, I don't know how it appears. Um, I've been, it's been so long that I've been doing it now. I can't remember what it was like, you know, looking at, at uh, Alan Barnes or Gary Gillis. I mean, I was an editor of another magazine before, TV Zone, which you um, may remember it doesn't actually exist anymore. But, um, of course, it's a fun job. I mean, editing a magazine is something that I enjoy doing uh, for itself. I mean, it's, it's nice that it's about... Doctor Who, because Doctor Who is something that I love very much. I don't know whether it does seem straightforward from the outside. Um, I mean, I hope it looks very, very complicated and that I work very hard, <laughs> but um, it is a job when it comes down to it. This is the, the thing, that it's a job that I very much enjoy doing, and I, I hope other people are as lucky to be doing jobs that, that they enjoy as much as I do. But, you know, that's not to say that there aren't days where you're sort of in the office, you're in a grumpy mood, and, and um, the emails crashed, or or whatever. I mean, all of the things that people have in their own jobs, you know, I have in mine. It's it's uh, it's a great job to have, and it's it, it is a lot of fun. Yes, I, I think it's quite tempting when you, when you're sitting behind your letterbox waiting each month for Doctor Who magazine to plop through, as it does religiously. You just think, my goodness, I would absolutely adore to be in this kind of job that produces this kind of content. And I think certainly it looks as if 
the magazine is produced effortlessly, and I think that's probably what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, well, I mean, when, when anything looks effortless, if, if it does, and it's kind of you to say if it does, it, it's because you shouldn't see the mechanics of something being put together. You know, we start with absolutely nothing, and then we have to put together all of those pages. I mean, obviously... You know, I don't. It's not a case that we finish one issue and then I literally think, right, I've got nothing for this next issue. You plan ahead, and there's a rolling process. That I mean, I've got things sort of on the world for the next next few issues going ahead, and you, you know, even sometimes a year or more ahead if it's something that you've been planning for a while. But yes, of course, you know, we talk about an awful lot of detail of, of every magazine and, and sort of things that that you might not particularly ever sort of think about you know the titles of features or the way that you introduce what what things are in the magazine i mean i hope when you look at doctor who magazine without sounding too sort of pretentious about the whole thing but you it 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 sort of guides you through that so that if you are a regular reader and you're someone who's been reading it for a long time then it's it's your familiar magazine and you you understand it all but if you've picked it up for the first time i hope it doesn't seem too uh overwhelming and and unintelligible you know so if you get to Gallifrey Guardian for example it has to explain somewhere on there that this is the news page I know it seems obvious if you've been reading the magazine for 30 years but it still needs to be clear Mm. that as soon as you look at that page a new reader understands oh this is the bit where they tell you about what's coming up or what what's being announced and and all of that sort of thing you know and that goes the same for something like the time team or you know review spaces they have to absolutely be clear you know, quite quickly what, what this is. So again, hopefully that's fairly invisible. But we do talk about that sort of thing. Yeah. Interesting. I, I think it probably mirrors many of the problems that the production crew face these days because Doctor Who has got a history. It needs to make, you know, some very obvious things to fans. Um, mm. The equivalent would be your subscribers, perhaps. I've been subscribing for... Well, longer than I care to remember, really. But I, I, I look back at the 2003 edition of Doctor Who magazine, and I can still see the continuity and some of the regular features appearing in today's issues. And I, I think the way you appeal to old and new fans alike must be extremely challenging, and it does appear to be very, very straightforward and simple. Yeah, well, the basic structure of the magazine is the cha- is, is, hasn't changed for, for some time and I mean there are things which gradually change but the, the, I always think the sort of the heart and soul of the magazine basically stays the same I mean perhaps sort of you go right back to the, the very early days and there are sort of things which are quite different but I think that the, the tone of Doctor Who magazine is set out actually quite early on I mean if you go back to the 80s issues you basically recognise mm. the, the same the same magazine there and of course there are a lot of contributors, writers and artists and people who have contributed to it for a long time. So, I mean, that's their personalities coming into it as well. And there's a sort of collective spirit, if you like, that that, uh, that sort of comes out of that. So, yes, and I mean, in some ways that becomes very sort of smooth. You don't sort of have to work too hard at that because it, it, it just is what it is. You know, it's, it, it, it is sort of shaped by sort of new people coming in a bit and, and you know, people have to to add their own voice to it if we if we bring in a new writer then you don't want someone just to sort of imitate what someone else has done yeah
Well, you mentioned earlier on that you, you've been on Doctor Who magazine for a rather long time. It was 2003, and I think it was issue 330, which I just so happen to have a copy of. 330 with Paul McGann on the cover, yeah. Indeed. I actually first worked a tiny bit on 329. Um, I think I came in for about the last week and a half of issue 329, and Clayton Hickman, who was editing the magazine at the time, previous assistant editor, had been Conrad Westmas, who you may know is... is an actor, really, mm. um, but had done some some work on the on the magazine um, with Clayton. But I think he wants to go off and become an actor, and and or what, what he already was an actor, but he had work that he he uh, wanted to do. So I came in after that, and I did come in at the very end of three two nine. I remember being slightly, ever so slightly, put out that that I didn't get a credit properly on issue three two nine because I was <laughs> there. I did, did write some of the news and so on. So so I should have bought a copy of issue three two nine. Really, well, um, <laughs> it, 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 I, I'm over it now. <laughs> I remember actually in issue three two nine. I think um, Clayton sort of preempts me being introduced by saying, you know, because he says it's goodbye to Conrad. I understand actually he wants to say it's goodbye to Conrad um, in that editorial, and then sort of says at the end and join us next issue when we'll be meeting the new new assistant because uh, Conrad yeah. himself was only really a new assistant. He'd only been there for about five or six issues, I think, and, and makes some joke about putting me in a pair of speedos for the photo shoot, which I didn't seem keen about. Um, but I, it, actually, that sort of thing is exactly the, the sort of tone of the magazine <laughs> I was just talking about, really. It's, it's that sort of silliness, that, mm. um, which actually makes it sound rather daft when you start trying to analyse it. But but that is the tone of the magazine. It's, it's sort of, you, you want me, people to feel like it, 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 you're part of a club and, and yeah. that you know the people yeah. who work on it, and hopefully without being too kind of uh, sort of self-promoting but so are there going to be any i don't know corporate speedos for the dwm <laughs> team in the future yeah that, 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 fa- that photo shoot never actually happened <laughs> funny that yeah. <laughs> but this particular edition of the magazine I, I was taking a look through it when i knew i was going to be interviewing today um and, and it's quite fascinating i mean you probably know this already but mm. there's a gareth roberts comic strip in it for is eight- it dean um is it the one about the football. It is indeed. We can take a look. You'll be able to hear the rustling pages here, listeners. Mm. And the, the reason there is a reason why I want to point this out at this point as well, because it's uh, I, I couldn't help but smile when I when I first saw the opening panes here. The very first appearance of the Eighth Doctor. He's got something rather relevant on his head. Yeah, that's right. Yes, he's he's, uh, he's wearing a fez. I can't remember why he's wearing a fez now in that panel. And I think he gets rid of it fairly quickly, doesn't he? I think he loses it almost within... Yeah, oh, look, know. it's being knocked off by some policemen. There you yeah, go. Um, yes, it's quite fun, that, especially because you've got the sort of football stuff, which, of course, Gareth brought in, to, in some senses... Uh, uh, into the lodger, actually, mm. the lodger comic strip. Come to that. I mean, but that was that was an element of that before he did that for the for the television version. Yeah, we all sort of thought that thing was quite sort of thing was quite fun. That was a kind of sort of semi Roy of the Rovers spoof. That yes. comic strip, Doctor Who and the Nightmare, Delchester Rovers. Yes, but also <laughs> just as much actually looking at it there. I mean, I remember we had that thing where we put the Doctor Who logo actually into the strip. Mm. Doctor Who and the Nightmare Game, a bit like they used to at the, in the very early weeklies, where it would be Doctor Who and the Iron Legion, because there was a, an element of trying to sort of create that that sort of um, feel to it as well, like the old early Doctor Who weekly. Mm. Uh, really, that was that was uh, something worked out before I'd arrived. Mm. Well, as I said, it's notable for a couple of reasons. The Fez in the comic strip is one. There is another on the letters page. You mentioned Gallifrey Gardens. Oh, I know who just wrote a letter in, yeah. You know who I'm going to mention here, don't you? Mm. Uh, a certain Russell T. Davis from Manchester. Yeah. Now, his name rings a bell. 
Yes, that's right. Russell, um, I think he was writing about the departure of Izzy from the comic strip, which mm. actually there were a few letters about that because that had happened probably a couple of issues earlier. And uh, yes, Russell would always write in to, at that time, you know, with the email Clayton and so on. I think, um, I'm not sure whether he was intending that to be in, uh, printed on the letters page or whether that was just a, an email he sent to Clayton and Clayton, well, well I might as well print that. Um, I don't know. But, um, it, you know, Russell is even before he was anything to do with you know bringing the show back and we had any idea about that, he would always email the magazine and tell us what he thought about every single page, pretty much. Um, That's superb. He's uh, <laughs> always been a great supporter. Of course, this was in 2003. 2003, so, about yeah, sort of two years, March or April-ish, I think, probably. I think, I think I actually started on March the 3rd, so this probably came out on came out in April, I guess. I think it must have done the cover date. The is cover date is May. Yeah, yeah. 20th of May. Yeah, yeah, just over eight years ago. And and Clay does introduce me there on that, doesn't he? Saying, we're welcoming a new assistant editor on board in the form of young Thomas Pillsbury. <laughs> Fresh, freshly poached from the helm of TV Zone, of course, working on DWM will be a bit of a culture shock to Tom, who is more used to TV Zone's eclectic range of Doctor Who news, Doctor Who features, Doctor Who interviews, Doctor Who reviews, and an Andrew Pixley archive feature every issue than DWM's very different blend of... Oh. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Now, I mean, it, actually, he was teasing me there because um, uh, when I worked on TV Zone, Visual Imagination, um, which of course was a sort of general cult television mm. magazine, I did enjoy putting a lot of Doctor Who content into TV Zone. So, I, I think actually, <laughs> maybe this was Clayton's idea that, that uh, if if he snatched me away from TV Zone, then then he'd sort of get rid of the competition. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with your skills as an editor, really. Then, then. Okay. okay, so. Let's um let's talk about your, your your starting at the magazine. I mean, what what were your first impressions when you went into what would have been your new workplace? Yeah, work? well, I mean, I did know Clayton because we had actually worked together um, before he'd joined Doctor Who magazine, um, and I was at Visual Imagination then. We both worked there, so I already knew him. And in fact, we'd, we'd started about the same week or about a week apart at uh, Visual Imagination first. So, so we were, you know, we were. Friends, really. I mean, not maybe not the closest of friends at that time. Um, I, I knew who he was. I, we had a lot of friends in common. So I knew I was joining a, a good team. Of course, I knew the magazine very well as a reader. The the office itself, I'm not sure what you ever expect the first day you go into work <laughs> at a new job. I think you feel a little bit nervous, don't you? you you're not quite sure. I mean, you, you want to sort of find out what the basics are really like where's the kitchen where's the <laughs> toilets um yes. who do i need to know to ask about getting paid uh, making sure that i've got my p60 to them or rather your p45 i guess it's some of the answers like the kitchen is just behind the life-size cutout of colin baker yeah. i mean i take it that wasn't one of the uh... In terms of your background, did you always want to go into publishing? I mean, or, or was it a case? I mean, you hear many, many times when you speak to people involved in Doctor Who that Doctor Who inspired them in their career. Mm. Which which way round was it for you? I was watching Doctor Who before I was thinking about a job. Yeah, I mean, because I was a kid, <laughs> I, I watched Doctor Who from as far back as I can remember. You know, my earliest memories, sort of, of the late late 70s I'm 35 so I was born in 1976 just to put it in a bit of context <laughs> born in 1976 and I can remember very clearly watching Doctor Who in what must have been 1979 because it was Destiny of the Dark oh wow well, you've got a better memory than me <laughs> so, and of course yeah. that was also the time which Doctor Who Weekly was starting exactly that that period um, 
uh, around City of Death, I think. So uh, I, it was always a part of my my existence, my memory, my... You know, I can't really remember a time before I watched it. That's the, the funny thing, that, that sometimes people can remember very specifically, oh, that was when I discovered it or mm. whatever. But, but no, not really. I mean, in the same way that I couldn't... You know, most of us can't remember learning to read or learning to talk or walk. You know, I probably did watch Doctor Who before that, actually. I mean, I was probably always in the room when it was on from being a few weeks old. So that's why I don't really remember a first time because it was just there. So Doctor Who has pretty much been part of your life for as long as you can possibly remember. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, my dad Mm. would always watch it. Um, You know, he would never want to miss an episode. You know, I can't say for certain exactly which episodes I was in the room for or which ones I was having my tea or whatever, but from from as far back as I can remember, yes, I, I... I would have been there. But, you know, when I write my editorials, and I, you'll, you'll notice a recurring theme because I have to write one every bloody month. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully that comes across that I really love this programme. It's not something which um, I really want to be cynical about or, or, you know, I mean, we can all joke about Doctor Who and we can all sort of, you know, sort of have fun with it. But, I um, mean, it's something, yeah, which I, which I absolutely love a whole lot. And there must become a time, I mean, there is certainly in my job where you just think, I can't deal with this at this moment in time. It's just mm. too much. And, and given your history with the show as well, is there a time when you wish that you'd never watched Doctor Who or it was never on the telly when you were young and you wish you were, a, I don't know, um, an accountant? Well, no, I don't I don't wish that I'd never heard of the thing or it never existed, you know, but, but you do find at times that, that you don't want to be thinking about it all the time. I mean, in terms of a job, as I, I think I said earlier, um, I just enjoy being a magazine editor. So I'd be happily be a magazine editor for a different magazine. Uh, that's not something I want to do right now, but I don't suppose I'll be editing Doctor Who magazine for the rest of my life either. So long as he's longer than Clay, you've got to get his record. <laughs> well, he did, how many is editor? 70? He did five years worth, and he did refer to coming round with a baseball bat if it looks like you're going to break his record. Yeah, mm. actually, at the time that I've been editor for now, is sort of that seems to have passed quite quickly. It's four years now. I think um, you've got to be there until the latter half of next year, right? To uh, to, to take his trophy right. away from him. Well, I'm not really thinking about that at the moment because <laughs> all I ever really think about is trying to get the next issue <laughs> done and, and and so on. I quite um, understand. No, it's funny because I, I mean, overall, I think I've been there longer than anyone because I spent a pretty big chunk of Clayton's time there as his assistant. Four years. So, so although other editors have done long stints, and Gary Giller did a very long stint as editor as well, Gary, don't, I don't think, did any time as an assistant editor at all. And, and Clayton was Alan Barnes' assistant, but was only there for a, a year or so, I think. So the fact that I did about three and a half, four years as, as Clayton's assistant, and then on top of that, has done another. Four years, as I said. Yeah, it, it, it is a long time now. Sure. Um, but certainly one of the benefits of, of being there for such a long time is that you've seen the show go through massive transitions and your magazine yeah. has followed followed suit. I mean, you look at the magazine we're looking at now, your first one that came out with your name as deputy editor on it. It's a pamphlet compared to the magazine that you Well, yeah, I mean, it is literally now, fewer yeah. pages. Um, you know, there, there's certainly that side to it. I think we were 52 then and we're now... 84, and I think we went to 68 pages at the time, at the start of uh, 2005, Mm -hmm. and we went to 84 pages basically since the start of this year. That's now the regular thing. Yeah, it's become bigger, and and I hope it's become, oh, I don't want to say it's it's become better, because that sounds like you're... (laughs) 
I mean, I hope it is better, but because you always try and do things better, but I'm not saying that in any way to, you know, downplay what was done then. I mean, it was a terrific magazine, you know, and, and always has been, but it was doing something slightly different in those days. Yeah, surely because your, your core audience was probably slightly different. It was... You had to have a much higher proportion of rabid Doctor Who fans, presumably. Yeah, but I mean, even then, you would be aware of the fact that someone might be buying it for the first time. I mean, I, you should never get complacent about it. Never, ever sort of think that these are the only people buying it. Let's, let's move on to um, a rather hot topic. We've we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Doctor Who magazine in 2003. I mean, Doctor Who magazine now in 2011, um, you've got a, a really difficult job, I think, of trying to be very, very inclusive. You've, you've mentioned many times that people should be able to pick up a magazine and just understand what, what you're about. But uh, I want to show you um, a more recent uh, edition of Doctor Who magazine. This is edition 433 and this caused quite a bit of uh, controversy as you know I think you made the internet explode on a couple of occasions. So what I wanted to do, I mean given the spoilery nature of this or what people perceive to be the spoilery nature of 433 was to ask you what were you thinking? I mean uh, as with all of these things I think it's not that many people who would sort of really outraged or anything but to explain about the whole thing it's very difficult for a print magazine to sort of genuinely sort of have exclusive stuff and so on because we live in a world now where everything's so instant with with the internet and so on so I mean as far as being a news-based magazine I mean we can still break stories it's not impossible but the second we do in fact probably the second one single person has got hold of the issue um, it, you know, whether it's about a DVD release or whether it's about a, a big finish CD or, what, or whatever it might be, it's on the internet anyway, you know. So by the time people have actually got their issue, they may well have read it on the internet. But that's a slight digression because what I think the magazine should do, especially with its front covers and especially when it's actually on television, is engage with the storylines. Again, you, you, you end up sounding slightly pretentious when talking about it in these terms, which I, I you know, I, I hope I. I don't because I didn't mean to, but you know, I mean, I had a thing at the other the other issue where I did a big thing about Doctor Who being like a soap opera. I mean, it was a bit tongue in cheek, hmm. but actually, there's a serious point there because, like a soap opera, people watch Doctor Who because they engage with the storylines and they want to know how it's going to develop and what's going to happen to their favourite characters and so on. Um, now, obviously, we don't go ever as far as soap magazines do, which is the idea of basically saying everything that happens in the story <laughs> before you've seen it. Um, I mean, I love EastEnders, but I. I quite like to be able to watch it sometimes without having sort of absorbed by osmosis exactly the beat of every story. It's very odd because I don't really religiously read soap magazines. Um, Inside Soap has got a lot of Doctor Who fans working on it, and I do do read it from time to time. But you sort of just kind of know, I think, if you, whether it's it's sort of generally there. So. I wouldn't ever go that far because I wouldn't want to say, for example, if we were doing a storyline for the first story of this season, you don't want to sort of give away elements of how the story ends. I wouldn't have wanted to give away Amy shoots the astronauts at the end of episode one or something like that. I mean, I wouldn't have been allowed to anyway, but it's it's, <laughs> it's academic because I wouldn't want to. You know, you have to get strike a balance. So I'm waffling on a bit here, but basically, in the case of this particular episode, there's a great mystery which basically spans this season of Doctor Who, which of course 
now talking, you, you know what that is, the mm. fact that the Doctor is killed at pretty much the start of the whole season. It's revealed that he is a, a Doctor from the future, so it seems. And is this going to be his his ultimate fate? Can this be avoided? You know, they have to keep it a secret from him. So this, over, this is something which goes over the whole season, and I think it's a terrific hook and grab for the audience that Stephen Moffat has put into the, the mm. story. But of course, given that it happened so early on in the story, I was very aware of the fact that it might be the kind of thing which, as soon as they've put it, shown it at a press screening or when it's previewed in the Radio Times, it would be very tempting for any previewer to be sort of saying, well, right at the very start, you know, the Doctor is killed, um, and this sets off a whole chain of events and so on. And I thought, this is a real shame, because as far as I've you know, this wasn't really sort of known generally by Doctor Who fans and people generally. This this was uh, a great sort of thing there, but it was it was very much could run the risk of being being spoiled. So you know, I thought it would be rather a fun idea to turn it into a bit of a mystery because it's not it's not like Adric being killed at the end of Earthshot, which is something that happens right at the end of the story. This happens in the first five minutes or so. I mean, I wasn't going to say this happened in the first five minutes, but by turning it into a game and saying someone's going to die in episode one, who's it going to be? Mm. That, I think, is intriguing. I think that isn't actually a spoiler, whatever some people think. It, it, and it, as I, you know, I, I sort of cover myself a little bit in the editorial saying, you know, that I know some people might not want to know this, but of course, because it happened so early on, it, it's, the, it's the starting point, it's not the end point. But of course, people wouldn't have known that when they saw the covers of the magazine. Do you, do you think that when people were watching it, the impact of the Doctor being killed was lessened or softened had people seen the front of, of, of Doctor Who magazine? So as opposed to going, oh my God, the Doctor's been shot, would they be thinking, ah, that's what Doctor Who magazine I, I, was referring I, to? I think they would still be surprised. I hope they would, because I, I mean, I was at the press screening where... Our issue had um, just come out at the time of the, the press screen. We put the covers online. So although uh, you know, people were aware of the fact that there was this thing, it was literally a sort of hot topic at that point. Mm, because it mm. just, but people were surprised there at that press screening. I don't think you're expecting it at that moment. There might be a sort of penny dropping kind of yes. thing. Yes, I think so. Um, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone, unless you sort of had inside knowledge of what was going to happen, would, would sort of have predicted that was the way it was going to happen. I, I challenge anyone to, to have seen those covers and say, well, I've worked out what it is. It's, <laughs> it's five minutes in, the Doctor is going to to get get killed, start to regenerate, and then drop down dead and they're going to burn it. You know, I don't think... I think that still is a, a big surprise. No, and I would um, agree. I, I still think when you were watching that episode, yeah, you, you are taken aback when you when that scene hits. I do think you possibly look at it slightly different if you've read the article and indeed seen the pictures on the BBC website. Yeah, too. but I mean, it, it's... Uh, if you're lucky enough to sort of... I mean, if you're lucky enough to come across a programme which you literally know nothing about on television, and you might find that occasionally by channel hopping and you're just drawn in by it, that's, that's great. Great, and it's, it stands on its own. But generally speaking, especially on a programme like Doctor Who, you, you don't know literally nothing. You know, if you see a trailer, these, in theory anyway, are put together with a certain amount of thought by the creators of the programme. They yes. want you to know yes. these things. They want you to see these things. You know, I, I didn't do this these covers for the magazine without any kind of thought. You know, this was done very much with a conversation with Stephen saying, you know, how do we actually stop people from this is the irony we, <laughs> yes. how do we actually stop people from revealing what happens well if we turn it into a um a bit of a, a tease and a game like that 
then mm. it actually will stop the newspapers and press forward of wanting to, to reveal it because actually it's far more fun to make it a bit of a, uh, a guessing game and sure. people have their theories and so on. I, I think people go ridiculously far with sort of with the idea of spoilers because, of course, if someone tells you exactly everything that happens in an episode before you've seen it, you know, you're going to be annoyed with them. You know, why do you tell me that, you idiot? However, if the creators of the program want you to know a certain piece of information before you see it, that's part of the process of, of them showing you their, yeah. their, their piece of work. So, you know, I, I, I completely reject the idea that, it's, um, that it was faultless in any way. There's a similar thing with the current um, issue, of course, in a, in a slightly different way. You know, yes. the episode's called The Doctor's Wife, and I guess when people are first listening to this podcast, you won't quite have seen the episode yet. The episode is called The Doctor's Wife. It's there to create a certain impression in your mind. Now, how that will develop, you'll see when you see the episode. But it's not supposed to be something you discover when watching it, because they, that's what they call the story. <laughs> you know, if you, call the, if you call the story Genesis of the Daleks, it's not supposed to be a surprise when a Time Lord turns up and says, we want you to go back and... And do that. But can you imagine if, in those days, if if um, if if they had, you know, had Doctor Who magazine at that point, and you sort of revealed something about that's what's going to be, people would be saying, "I didn't want to know that." Well, it's revealed in the first five minutes and in the title of the episode. You know, that that's something you're supposed to know before you even see a single frame of footage. So, you know, I think there's a, a very definite um, comparison there. Sure, I, I think certainly the latest edition of uh, Doctor Who magazine. The reason people seem to have grounds for complaints on this one is because it's, it's um, and again, I would challenge this view, would uh, rule out Riversong from being the Doctor's wife, which of course it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't so, rule out anything, I don't no, think. This, is, this is the thing with no. Doctor Who, is that, that everything you think you might know it may not be the case at all. Mm. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, when David Tennant was leaving Doctor Who and you had the end of time, I mean... I don't think anyone went into that episode thinking, not knowing that that was his last episode and that he was going to regenerate. That was at the very end of the story, True. you know. Um, but you go in, you, you're intended to go in knowing that information. Um, but even then, Russell T. Davis was sort of hinting about, would you see a regeneration or would it be something else? I mean, he was he was saying, oh, you think that, do you? Well, of course, actually, he did regenerate and he turned into Matt Smith at the end. But, but it's still <laughs> fun to actually tease people with the idea, well, maybe it's not going to be like that. No. Maybe it's something different this time. And I think that's something the production team have been doing for years and years and years, almost as long as the show has been in production. And with Tom Baker starting off saying, ah, oh, the next Doctor, he or she. It's all, you a, know, it's publicity and, yeah. and promoting a programme. It's all a game. And there are certain things which, while not, you don't, you don't outright lie to people. That's one thing you don't do. But you can certainly have fun and tease with yeah. um Actually, I mean, I say you don't outright lie to people. I mean, I think there probably were occasions when <laughs> Russell might have fibbed to an extent. But I mean, I think in terms of the stories, um, there, there are certain things which, you know, Stephen and Russell and any other writer for Doctor Who or any other programme will want to keep secret. Yeah. John Nathan Turner had the decision in the 80s whether to reveal the Cybermen and get Radio Times cover or keep it a secret. He chose to keep it a secret. But if he'd, cho- if he'd gone the other way and decided to call the story Return of the Cybermen, that would have become a big selling point and you would have watched it differently. Mm. Well, either way is valid. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it just depends 
and how to keep the audience attention. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's going to be, I think, very stark, and other times I think it's going to be quite subtle. I think also, I mean, you referred to this earlier on, uh, the way that people actually consider information. And certainly one of my co-hosts on the podcast has uh, come up with this line a couple of times. People consider information as a right these days, not necessarily mm-hmm. as a privilege. And I think people do expect information to be there instantly, and therefore, they seem to think the obligation on those providing that information is to be much more responsible. And I think it's it's an argument that's never going to go away. Well, I mean, in terms of what we do on the magazine, you know, I, I like the fact that we are an independent magazine, but we are also the official magazine. We literally, uh, well, not literally, but we, are, we, we have our cake and eat it. We do talk with Stephen and before that, I talk with Russell about the way we cover things because I... I I want to make sure that they're happy with that. Yeah. Um, but that's only sensible. Um, I'm not trying to catch anyone out. I mean, in the same way, actually, whether I was talking about the soap magazines, they talk with the producers of EastEnders and Coronation Street. And again, if there are really are things which they want to keep secret, I mean, there are vacations, you know, where who killed Archie Mitchell? That's a big, <laughs> that's a big secret. And you don't reveal that. And we're actually going to do it. It's going to be so secret. We're going to do it in a live episode. I mean, those are the kind of times when it really gets exciting. Though. Indeed. No, I agree. Um, I agree. I, I think people do need to be more and more creative in terms of the way that they publicize their, uh, their show. But, uh, but thank you for spending the time talking to me about that particular issue. I know it's certainly one that's been burning within Doctor Who fandom. And, uh, you can't please everyone. That's the other, that's the other thing, which is... Uh, you will never please everyone. We don't please everyone on the Doctor Who podcast, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and Tom has very kindly agreed to sign a copy of DWM 433. And you listeners, you just have to answer one very simple DWM-related question. Tom. Okay, and the question is... Can you name all four members of the new time team from uh, uh, the start of this year? They've been watching from Rose onwards. Can you name the four new members? Wonderful. You need to send your competition entries to feedback at the Doctor Who podcast.com and the winner of which will receive this copy, the controversial copy of Doctor Who magazine, number 433. What, what I'd like to do is, is, is move away from that issue now a little bit and just talk about some of the interviews uh, okay. that you've you've conducted. And uh, you know, I've, I've I've been fortunate enough to interview some some big names. Bernard Cribbins was one that came oh, on the Doctor Who podcast a little yes. while ago, and I was absolutely flabbergasted that well, that ever happens. He's brilliant. I mean, um, I, I I've met Bernard Cribbins briefly, but. Uh, Oh, isn't that brilliant that he he uh, sort of had a that period as as Wilf and and oh, yeah. uh, he's, he's you know every generation loves Bernard Cribbins, don't they? Well, I think so, and I've never heard a bad review of his performance no. or even Doctor Who fans who can be incredibly cynical at times. Uh, I have been so welcoming to him, and every scene was a. Was it was a steam sealer, but I I can wax lyrical about talking to Bernard mm. Gribbins for ages, and that's not so I want to talk to you about uh, your experiences, certainly with uh, with Nick Courtney, which of course must have mm. a little bit of uh, poignancy now. Yeah, I mean I haven't done very many interviews for the magazine because it's not really my you know the thing I enjoy doing most. I hate transcribing the things. Um, 
uh, you know, that's why I'm an editor. I employ other people to do the <laughs> interviews, but I do occasionally do one once myself. And, and yeah. it was very nice to, to interview Nick Courtney, which I think I did after he'd done the Sarah Jane episode that he appeared in. Um, and we had a, we spent a very nice, well, I think it was going to be an hour or so, but it probably turned into about three or four hours <laughs> wow. in the pub, um, <laughs> yeah. one Sunday afternoon and just chatting away. I remember actually, I think that one won the sort of people's favorite interview of that year in our mm. poll we did, but you know, I, I remember thinking, oh, I'm not sure this is a great interview because actually we're just having a chat in the pub and, <laughs> and am I actually going to be able to make something out of this? I mean, it was, it was great company, but, um, you know, half of it I sort of had to chuck out because it was, <laughs> it was just chit chat. It wasn't really about anything specific, but, um, no, I was very fond of Nick Courtney and, and, um, I'd known him for a few years and that's one reason why I thought it'd be quite nice to interview him because I only ever really like interviewing people that I already know a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see you've, you've made a list there of people I've interviewed for the magazine. I have. Freem Radjaman, I knew a little bit. Um, and and Freem is just gorgeous and lovely and so fun. And, and I knew that I could really relax around mm-hmm. Freem. I mean, mm-hmm. it's nervous. It's, you'd be nervous um, interviewing people because you don't know what they're going to be like. Precisely. So <laughs> that's why I leave it to other people to do it. And, and uh, you know, I knew that I'd get on well with with Freema, Nick Courtney I'd known for some time, Graham Harper, lovely man, again, who I'd interviewed back um, originally when I was working on TV Zone, so I'd interviewed him. And of course there's Stephen Moffat, I had a big interview with Stephen last year. Indeed, um, yeah. I've known Stephen for years and years and years, so, you know, it's it's very easy to uh, to relax and, and sort of have a quite a good frank conversation um, and also sometimes as editor, with someone like Stephen running the show, you, you think, I really know what I want to ask him about. Yes, yes indeed. Um, yeah. I don't, actually, I don't, I don't want to give this to someone else. I, I've got very specific things I want to ask. So I, I did on that occasion. But yeah, it's only really a handful of interviews I've done. And um, they're, they're all with people that I, I really like. <laughs> well, it's certainly got to be one of the perks of the job is that you can choose presumably who you want to interview yourself. Even then, it's still a pain to transcribe the things and, and to, to have to actually write the thing up because I don't get any extra time for doing that or, or you know, any of perks in that way. So, you know, so yeah, I have to really want to do it. Ben interviewed Matt. I actually yeah. did an interview. I did the first interview the Mag did with Karen Gillan, which was a, a short phone chat, I think probably about 10 minutes on the day they announced that she was going to be right, the, right, the new right. companion. Um, we always like to have on the magazine, as soon as there's a big casting announcement if, if at all possible we'd like to be able to get an interview in straight away of course they're not going to be able to say anything much because they haven't even started Precisely. making it yeah. um, and that was arranged very very last minute or first minute actually in terms of you know they just announced it but you know what I mean we wanted to get something into the issue where we were having her on the cover saying she's the new companion so I did that um, and I, I had about a minute and a half to scribble some questions together to, to speak to her she must have been nervous because I think it was pretty much the first interview she'd done yeah and then I sort of gabbled my way through them her answers were fairly brief and to the point because she had a publicity person there sort of you know saying what she couldn't couldn't say I mean it's fine it's, it's, it was a little two page piece and I think people were pleased it was the fact it was there more than anything it's nice for the magazine to be able to say look we've spoken to them straight away but of course they can't say anything very much no, so I don't really like doing that sort of piece because it's it's pressurised and I don't think you really get the best out of people but sure no I can understand that Um, 10 minutes is always going to be difficult to get something you know really really juicy I think Mm. and uh, well at least she had done the fires of Pompeii of course so I was able to 
say Indeed. a little bit about doing that one, but she couldn't say anything about Amy. I don't think they even said that she was playing a character called Amy Pond. I'm certain of that mm. because when we were doing that cover where the um, shots which they'd first revealed of her. Um, I'd worked out a one which said, meet Amy Pond. And then I realised on the press release, they hadn't even said her name. So I thought, oh, I can't even put that. They're obviously going to have a separate press release to a few no, weeks later no. to say who she's playing. Oh, I um, so I thought, oh, all right, well, it'll have to be sort of just say Karen Gillan, she's the new companion, but without saying that. So at times, you know, when you can't even say what your character is called, I mean, what can you say, really? Yeah, um, pretty much. There's got to be questions. How do you feel about winning the role or something like yeah. that, which are fairly generic. And everyone's um, going to ask that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Is there anyone who you would very much like to interview before your time on Doctor Who magazine comes to an end? Do you mean me personally or just the magazine? No, you interview? personally, yeah. Not really. Um, I mean, if, if, if opportunities come up, there's a possibility I might sort of say oh I'd like to do that one but I don't I don't really sort of have a list of people I personally would like to interview because it's not my thing Fair but if you're t- talking about the magazine generally and as, a, as an editor um, yes of course um, I mean I, I like the fact that we can do big interviews with with past doctors and I, I like that that can be something which we can make a big thing out of we've done that with Tom Baker we've done it with Sylvester McCoy I'd really like to do a big interview with Paul McGann yeah. really like to do a big interview with Christopher Eccleston um, and I think everyone would like to read that but we'll we'll see timing is the is the key with these kind of things you know I wouldn't like to, to do that interview myself because I think it takes someone far more skilled at interviewing than, mm-hmm. than me which is why I would ask one of my team to, to do that if we get the opportunity to. You know, it has to be something that Crystal Eccleston would like to do. Well, precisely, um, yes. And he's, he's not been too keen on um, speaking to any kind of media, really, since his time as the Doctor. He's, he's had one or two lines quoted here yeah, and there. Yeah, mm. I mean, he, he was always very supportive of the magazine, and he did an interview with the magazine before he started, um, and he was always very, very helpful and, and supportive to us generally. But um, it's fine. I mean, people will speculate away because... When someone doesn't talk about something, I think there's an awful lot to, to sort of say. And maybe there are things that one day he will talk about. But, you know, I think I think as with everything, you sometimes want a bit of distance, don't you? I mean, you don't always want to talk about things the second you finish doing them because you're doing the next thing. So there was a long time when Tom Baker didn't really talk much about being the doctor. He wanted to distance himself from it. And now his recording big finishes. Exactly, yeah. So, no, I think it's true in everybody's day-to-day job, to be honest with you. You want to move on, you want to look to the next thing. And I think sometimes as fans, we look at these guys who are involved in the programme and we don't really think about them having a career or, or, or doing a job. Yeah. They're just there to please us. And I think mm. that's um, that's an unfortunate but, way of But in terms of us of wanting to do something in the magazine yeah. and who we'd like to talk to, you have to make sure, really, that, that there's a there's an angle to it. Delighted to be able to do a Sylvester McCoy cover last year because uh, there were various reasons I wanted to do it. One, because I knew Sylvester's got a lot of fans who would be interested in what he had to say on a, on a basic level. But that's not enough, actually. You have to, to delve deeper. You have to try to get him to talk about things that he hasn't talked about yes. before. Yes, indeed. Um, and yeah. he did, and he talked about being a, a young actor, and he talked about his reaction to um, that editorial in the Radio Times that was around that time which uh, basically the editor had said, you know, Matt Smith, he's no Sylvester McCoy. And actually, Sylvester brought that up himself. This wasn't something that we... Um, <laughs> you had to raise. We, we sort of raised the point with him. No, he wants, to, he wants to talk about that. You always have to be relevant. You always have to be bringing the interview up to date. You know, we're yes. not just... Otherwise, you might as well have just interviewed him in 1989. We're interviewing him now. So what, what can we ask him about now in the, the way that his mm. life is today and, and what his views on, on Doctor Who are? Mm. Or all sorts of other things. What you know? 
of a recurring thing that, that comes up has come up in a lot of interviews we've done recently is what people make of the BBC and its role in, in British society these days. And again, I think that's an interesting thing because, because a lot of actors, writers, producers have an opinion on that. And I think a lot of the readers will have an opinion on mm, that. Mm. So so I like to bring those things in which aren't specifically to do with Doctor Who, but it does affect it in, in a broad sense. It's been discussed on many Doctor Who podcasts, mm. you know, the way the licence fee is um, is set and how long it's been frozen, the impact in terms well, it's of... it's frozen for six going. years and yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely outrageous. I mean, there's not much we can do about it, but, you know... That's going to have an effect on the BBC generally. You know that will affect all its programmes, actually. You know, and Doctor Who is one of those programmes. But I mean, the the team who make Doctor Who are brilliant and will, you know, always fa- find ways to to keep the quality up. Yeah. But yeah, you know, you're talking about a corporation that that's now had that license fee frozen for six years. So yeah, it's going to have an effect. And I think it's interesting when we talk to people like Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, um, and people who actually work within yeah. those constraints and what they, how that's going to affect them and what that, what that means. Um, I've got two other areas, Tom, that I'd like to talk to you about briefly. And uh, we, we talked about this just before we started recording, but um, podcasting. Now, very recently, both Podshock and Radio Free Scarrow got a mention in Doctor Who magazine. I think that was a couple <laughs> of editions ago. And I, I just wondered whether or not you've got any plans to take a look at what the fans are doing in terms of audio radio shows well i mean we, we always try to sort of cover new new areas and new things in the magazine generally you don't want to sort of repeat yourself too much i have to admit i mean i'm not someone who is sort of often it's sort of very technically minded and so on so i'm not someone who sort of listens to an awful lot of podcasts myself but i know it is a very popular area and so maybe we'll, we'll do something on it it's funny i mean ben cook pitched me this idea about covering Twitter and who was on there and so on. Yes. And I was very dubious about doing it, really, as I'm often very dubious about things. Um, but I'm, I'm always willing to have my arm twisted to sort of do stuff, because actually I'm, I'm uh, very ignorant and live in my little bubble and, and work on Doctor Who magazine. And, of course, there are other things going on out there and people would like to know about them. Yeah. You know, so the Twitter thing <laughs> is a good case in point, because I think, although I wouldn't want to do anything longer than the the few pages we did you know there is an area of, of things which, which is of interest there so yeah perhaps we will do it i mean the, the thing which is always tricky with any article uh, along those lines is you think well how how are we going to make this article look what do we you know you need you always need photos for any this is a magazine not a uh, <laughs> not a book yes of course um yes so you have to think, how is this going to look lively and so on. It's very true, um, because most of the podcasters I've met have all got faces for audio, um, myself <laughs> included, so you will have a problem there. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's as much true, to be honest, to things like covering the big Finnish audios, because, you yes, know, of it's, you don't really want to have just lots of pictures of, of people around a microphone, or even, you know, just sort of against the, the wall of the studios where they where they record them. Um, so that's why we use things like artwork, or we'll, um, we'll we'll try to get more interesting photos and so on. But of course, you know, people aren't dressed up in costume in the same way as they would be for, for television. Which leads absolutely perfectly into my final question, because people dressed up in costume is something that happens very, very frequently over at the American conventions mm. now. And I've, I've been lucky enough to go over to uh, Los Angeles the last two years now to the Gallifrey, which is the biggest convention in the world. Clay was there as well. Um, he, he's interviewing people. Gary Russell is there having a wonderful mm. time. Is this something that, A, you would like to go to personally at some point and, and, and B, again, perhaps cover at some point in the magazine? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't 
go to an awful lot of conventions, to be honest. And I, again, I live a very sheltered life, really. I, I go to work in Tunbridge Wells, and, and <laughs> that's my that's my life. And then I go home to sleep at night sometimes. I'd, I'd like to to go to one of the big conventions in America. Um, I, I know the Gallifrey convention is often in February, isn't it? And it's yeah. it, because we're always gearing up for the series about to come on telly. It's often not the most convenient time. We, we might do stuff. I mean, actually, funnily enough, it's something which um, John Ainsworth editing the American title Doctor Who Insider, which has started recently, mm. I think he's, he's going into a bit more about fans and and uh, conventions and people who've made things or, or dressing up or whatever. Because it's because really it's an area which we don't go into much in Doctor Who magazine. It's not to say that we we never would, but you know it's it's funny to an extent. It's the job of an editor to sort of cover things which they might not personally have so much of an interest in. But but you are always trying to judge, you know, is how interesting is this to, to people generally? You know, hopefully people would be interested in, in, in reading most of the magazine, but then I'm not sure. If you buy a magazine generally, how much do you expect to read? I, it um, depends on who you're asking. I think certainly a lot of your subscribers will read it cover to cover inside of the first 24 yeah, hours of receiving it. I think but, that's true, and I think yeah. that's very unusual. If I buy a copy of Empire... I don't read every single word. No, me neither. And or, or any other magazine, for that matter. I think Doctor Magazine is very rare that people expect to be able to read virtually the whole thing. I think you have a couple of unique traits within Doctor Who fandom that you may not necessarily find elsewhere. Mm. But I, I think that's true. And it very much depends on the proportion of your readers that are subscribers. Mm. Um, so therefore, yeah, the last thing you would want to do, I'm assuming, is publish an article about a three-day event in Los Angeles that only... 20% of your readers are going to be interested Yeah, in. because, I mean, I, I hope that even if you're not interested in listening to the Big Finish audios, for example, you know, plenty of other things I could use as an example, but if you're not interested in that specifically, I hope you'd still find something interesting in the in the piece. I mean, we, in the next issue, we've, we're doing an interview with Christopher Benjamin and Trevor Baxter, of course, play Jago and Lightfoot, and in the talents of Wang Chiang, and have come back recently to do their own audios. Mm, mm. Now, you know, lots of people will buy those audios and enjoy them, and plenty more wouldn't ever occur Very to them true. to do that. But hopefully you'll still enjoy the interview. You know, this is it, that, that you, you always try to make whatever you do in the magazine as, as accessible to as many people as possible. But, of course, that's within the caveat that, that you know not everyone's going to be interested in everything. It's, it, we're lucky in a way that, that, that Doctor Who is a fairly narrow thing to do a, a magazine about. I mean, although... We all like to say how Doctor Who is so limitless, and which is true, but it's still a magazine about one single television program. So you sort of assume that people will have quite a <laughs> yeah. quite a big interest in in all of these different parts of it. I think that's very true. I mean, fandom is incredibly diverse, and I, I think your magazine really does cater for for everyone. I've I've been a subscriber for many many years, as I said, and I uh, will continue to be so. Tom, thank you very much indeed for spending just a very short period of time really talking to us. But it's been it's been fascinating. Thank you. It's really interesting to hear somebody talking about a print magazine in the information age. I mean, one, surely one of the things that um, Doctor Who magazine is absolutely fighting with is the speed of information as it comes flying across the internet. And for it to challenge the internet is a hell of an achievement to me. To, uh, to me. Mm, absolutely. It was, it was fascinating speaking to Tom. 
about the way that he, he edits the magazine and, and the choices that he makes. And I think the really interesting thing for me is the way he mixes it up. Mm. And, and sometimes you will have, you know, a very unique way of trying to promote the show that's been carefully coordinated with the with the show's producers like 433 and cover 433. But of course, that does caught a lot of controversy yeah. that, uh, that Tom spent a lot of time talking about uh, d- during that interview. But, but for me, it goes beyond just you know, Tom's role as editor. I'm really interested to hear what he gets up to during the day, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, what, what the office is like at Doctor Who magazine. For me, I was thinking, oh, great. Okay, so what, what kind of coffee do you have? I, I didn't didn't say that, but uh, <laughs> for me, it's really interesting to, to speak to people who are involved in producing actual content like the magazine, like the show, and the way they coordinate with each other. It's just yeah. really interesting to hear what their work experience is like. You know, they're normal people. They go to work. They do a job. The only yeah. difference being is that we get, well, in this case, a glossy magazine popping through your letterbox once every four or five weeks. And as, as I said in the interview, it looks effortless because it turns up regular as clockwork. And yeah, you know, absolutely fascinating just just sitting there chatting away to Tom. So thanks ever so much, Tom, for for being so generous with your time. Not you, Tom. Mm. I mean, Tom, Tom. <laughs> well, I just, I, I would like to say, actually, I was lucky enough to sit down with uh, Michael from the Tin Dog podcast about a week ago. Um, and he had a copy of Doctor Who magazine with him. And I flipped through it. And there were two things I noticed. Number one, that there was a clear lineage all the way back to that first episode, uh, sorry, that first issue of Doctor Who Weekly. Just something up the Gallifrey Guardian, the layout, the, t- uh, the, the, the cartoon strip. But most importantly, and I think a huge achievement for a piece of print media, I didn't expect what I saw in there. The news in there that was new, the pictures were new, so there was a sense of getting something special, which I've got to be honest, If I, for the other magazines that I read, so computer journals and, and maybe things about, and maybe other industry things, there's never anything terribly surprising in them, I, and there's nothing I can't get from the internet. But with DWM, they seem to achieve this, almost the nirvana or the, or the holy grail, of being able to produce a piece of print that's got surprising and exclusive news in it. So, well, you know, well done to Doctor Who magazine. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Doctor Who podcast, slightly different from usual. We'll be back very soon to be discussing the Doctor's wife. You know, I'm slightly disappointed, Tom. We can't really do any kind of pirate impressions or anything for this one. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's no impression I could possibly do because I don't have a wife. Maybe you'd maybe like to get Angela involved. (laughs) Oh, perhaps. But then I'd have to take on the name of Doctor. And no, it all gets a little bit too dodgy, I think. I think we'll just say... Trev will be back with us uh, to, uh, to temper our debate once again in the next episode of the Doctor Who podcast. So in the meantime, keep your feedback coming in. Don't forget to enter the competition to win the signed copy of Doctor Who magazine 433. Uh, that's, um, that's up for grabs. And we'll speak to you again very soon. Bye for now. Take it easy. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.